As if the McCrispy couldn't get any better, bacon and ranch just entered the chat. The Bacon Ranch McCrispy, available at participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ba da ba ba ba. Davis steps under center. Gibson and McClendon behind it. Davis with motion by Richard. Will get the ball to McClendon. He leaps. Oh, he doesn't get in. He fumbled the football. Carolina holds. The game is over. And Carolina has won the game. Finley to throw. Over the middle. Intercepted. Wolfuck again. Wolfuck the other way. At the 30, the 40. Wolfuck to midfield. Miles Wolfuck with the pick. The heels on the doorstep of an enormous victory. Left side of the line. Hood standing to Williams is right. Williams gonna throw. One on one. Davis has it. Touchdown. Carolina wins. Carolina is the Coastal Division champion. Bernard fields it at the 26. Heading to the far side. Gio at the 35. Gio, he's at the 50. No, he's not. Yes, he is. Gio, he's gonna take it. for the possible win. Snap, spot, kick away, high enough, long enough. It's good! It's good! Carolina has won the game on a 42-yard field goal by freshman Hunter Burr. Good gosh, dirty! This is the Heel Tough Blog Hey guys, and welcome to another edition of the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. It's your host, Anthony Pagnata, with you guys, as always, back on camera yet again. And it's time for another round of position previews today. Wide receivers and tight ends. But before we do that, uh, we are going to have some other topics that we are going to talk through. Of course, season tickets selling out the other day. We're going to start with that. Uh, NIL laws uh, in place and uh, some tutorials uh, benefiting early on. We'll talk a little bit about that a little bit about the NIL stuff and uh, then we'll go ahead and move on to an interesting quote that came out from Mac Brown the other day about the 12 team playoff also have to get into a Twitter beef that Josh got into uh, on the socials the uh, yesterday actually uh, so we'll get into that uh, shortly and uh, we'll wrap it up of course with some recruiting news for you some big stuff uh, for Carolina coming up in the next couple of days but as I mentioned we start with the season tickets Carolina selling out for the second straight year that they've been able to have season tickets on sale. Of course, last year with everything that went on with COVID-19, it was definitely far from a traditional season uh, in Keenan Stadium, but the Tar Heels are uh, you know, back in full capacity this year. They did announce that a couple weeks ago, and now uh, Carolina uh, has sold out all of their season tickets. I think that was probably what a lot of people were waiting for, kind of to get that clearance that the stadium would be full before they purchased season tickets not wanting to purchase and get left out in the cold but uh, it's definitely a, a pretty significant thing considering that uh, attendance was a big issue even during the successful times under Larry Fedora uh, to see Mac Brown come in and uh, so far two of the first three years that he's been on campus 
you know, sell out uh, the the seats in Keenan Stadium and probably would have done it uh, last year as well, I think is definitely something to be encouraged about. Uh, I think the bigger story would have been had they not sold out season tickets. That would have been the issue. you got a preseason top 10 team. You've got a Heisman hopeful at quarterback. You've got a team that many believe can crash the college football playoff party if certain things go their way. So the season tickets should have been sold out like they are. Um, I think the biggest thing is that the university's done a great job making it affordable for us to get into Keenan Stadium six, seven times a year without spending an arm and a leg. Uh, they did a good job marketing um, with all these different packages. But, you know, it, when when Mac Brown took the job, he challenged Carolina fans to buy season tickets to be in their seats, you know, at the Rams 4 kickoff. And so far, we've held, our, held up our end of the bargain. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the main things that he talked about, along with recruiting and locking down the state of North Carolina. It was about getting uh, rear ends in the seats in Keenan Stadium and uh, he hit it hard his first year and it's worked it's it's lasted into this year and the best part about it was you know in 2019 you could tell that they were really working to try to get those season tickets sold out here in 2021 you didn't see them on social media as often this was really just the fact that Carolina fans are excited about the upcoming season and uh, I I think that it's setting up for a great season in Keenan Stadium as you mentioned uh, you know just talking about this beforehand a lot of night games so that's definitely going to have a lot of people excited it's going to give you uh you know kind of the day to watch college football before you go to Keenan Stadium and settle in so you'll already be kind of in that college football mindset and mode for some of these games uh that was always a big complaint were the 12 o'clock games we haven't had a lot of those over the last couple of years and I think it's really starting to pay off for Carolina but in order to stay in those prime time slots you gotta win so that's going to be the big thing Uh, But they will have a tremendous crowd behind them once again this year to try to help them do that. Uh, Moving on, talking a little bit about the NIL laws put in place, uh, of course, back at the start of July. Um, You know, first of all, you know, we talked a little bit about it on the uh, uh, Four Corners podcast, but we didn't really delve into it too much. Don't think we're going to really delve into it here on this one. Uh, We're not going to turn this into an entire NIL conversation for the entire 30, 40 minutes of the show. But, uh, you know, when you look at what was put in place, uh, you know, what are your initial thoughts on, on the NIL loss? Step in the right direction. Um, I think this was something that was long overdue. These players should have the ability to profit off their name, image, and likeness. Um, I just hope we find a common ground to police it, monitor it. That way it doesn't get out of control because right now it's like the wild, wild west. You don't know what's going to happen. And we've seen a lot of positive things already come out of this. Eric King's gotten a lot of deals. He's already you know, spreading the money around with his teammates. It's going to benefit the Olympic athletes very much as well. But there's going to come a time when Archie Manning's or when Arch Manning comes up or Bronny James, if he goes to college, those guys could potentially make a million dollars on endorsements. And I don't think that's what college college athletics should be about. So hopefully by then the NCAA has got their head out of the rear ends, and we've we've got a we've got a common ground to to police this thing. Ultimately, I don't think it's going to happen. I do think this will be the ultimate downfall of the NCAA. Um, because I just don't think they have the right leadership in place to do this. And they they made that known the 24 hours before NIL became effective. Yeah, I mean, look, I was going to say don't hold your breath. Let's be real honest. The NCAA has never really been all that progressive. They haven't been progressive on this issue either. They knew this was coming for years on top of years, the better part of the last decade, and proceeded to do nothing. 
yep. um, because, frankly, they don't care. Um, you know, we at WFNZ in Charlotte, uh, the radio station that I work at, you know, we had a uh, we, we had a guest on that talked about the NIL situation. She was a former college athlete. She attended both Duke and Carolina, and she, I mean, she said it right out that. The fact that the NCAA has put as much money as they have into the lawyers that have been fighting not only this battle, but many other battles in terms of, you know, payment for players, all sorts of different things that would benefit players. Uh, they have put all the money they possibly can into lawyers to try to fight this. Uh, it's disheartening. And, uh, you know, to hear that from a student athlete, that's I would assume that that's probably what everyone feels. It really opens your eyes to say to yourself, look, you know, there are a lot of people that feel like they are not being heard and that. They're making money for these schools, for the NCAA in general, especially the ones that go and play in the college football playoff, play in the NCAA tournament. You're making college athletics a ton of money, and you are not receiving anything. You can't even make money off of selling your own jersey, you know, selling autographs, anything like that. You are not allowed to do that. Uh, the NCAA, you know, look – you said it. They tried to sprint, you know, to the finish uh, after, you know, I mean, they literally waited until the last second, tried to sprint to the finish and get something in place. They did, but unfortunately, it's not really, it's, it's not on the same level for every state. So here's how it works. Schools that, you know, were going to have NIL in place anyways. They have state laws. We knew there were some states like Alabama, like Georgia, uh, Florida, all those types of states. They were going to have NIL laws in place regardless of what happened with the NCAA on July 1st. Those are state laws. So every school is held to the same standard. The ones that do not have those laws in place the schools in those states they are on their own standard they are supposed to police this themselves as we've learned in the past from college programs all over the country and for crying out loud we just had another example not even a week ago now over at kansas they show you that constantly that they cannot handle taking care of things inside of their own program so this could this is Something that needs to happen. But I would agree with you. I think it, at some point, you have got to lay down a, a set group of rules for everybody. At least attempt to try to make it fair. There will be people, as there always are, that will try to get around those rules. But try to set something in place where everybody is held to a similar standard. Not... Certain schools can, you know, do what they want because they're policing themselves, and other schools are policed by the states. Yeah. So we'll we'll see. I think, uh, you know, it, it, there's still a long way to go with that. Um, I, I mean, this is the start of pay for play, right? Like, I, I don't. Unfortunately, yes. It's an it's inevitable. It's going to happen at some point that guys are going to be paid to play uh, at the schools. Uh, you wonder, you know, what's that's going to turn into? If it's going to turn into, you know, free agency type of stuff or whatever. But we'll. we'll We'll see. It's going to get to that point, you would believe. Uh, and I think it's one of those progressions that, I, I, bar, you know, barring something shocking here, like with the 12-team playoff, which we'll talk about here in a minute, uh, the good news is, is for people that are waiting on that, 
college athletics don't quite move that fast when it comes to change. It usually takes a long time. I mean, look at how long they've been battling this NIL thing. So if you're one of those people stuck in your ways with this, you probably don't have anything to worry about for another few years. Uh, some of the guys that have already received some endorsements uh, from Carolina, there's only two that, as of right now, I know of from looking through and seeing. There are some other guys that have, you know, they have the, f- the fact that they're considered a Barstool athlete in there, but Barstool has a page where they tweet out all of the people that are considered Barstool athletes, and neither one of those guys are up there yet, so I'm going to hold off on that until I see their names up there. But the guys we know of right now, J.J. Jones, he was actually the first to get an endorsement He's actually a true freshman wide receiver for the team. We're going to talk about him actually here in a minute. Um, he ends up uh, getting a deal from a grocery delivery company called GoPuff. Actually got that on July 2nd as well. He's got a pretty big influence, good social media following, a guy that uh, does some YouTube videos as well. Uh, so he's definitely a guy that I think knows how to market himself very well. And this is going to be one of the guys that will benefit from this heavily. Another guy that uh, so far has benefited, he is actually an official Barstool athlete per that Twitter account account. Uh, It is Trey Morrison. Uh, He also has a deal signed with Playmaker, uh, which is a group that uh, I think right now is kind of helping guys make t-shirts, make logos, stuff like that. Uh, He has a t-shirt that is uh, available for him. You can go to his Twitter page. Uh, It's actually in his bio there. Uh, So some really cool stuff already out of the gate for some of these guys kind of profiting off of their own name, image, and likeness, uh, which, you know, they should have been doing for a a long, long time. And uh, you know we we uh, you know we know what this means. The one we know that this means that there is going to be the return of college NCAA football yep. at some point. The video game will be coming back. Hopefully that maybe leads to NCAA basketball at some point. The other interesting conversation here is. Now, this opens the door, potentially, for some classic jerseys to be made. Hasn't been anything confirmed from Carolina football, but I know you were saying earlier when we were talking about this pre-pod that they are going to go ahead and do some of this stuff for the basketball program? So UNC basketball and UNC women's soccer, they've already, they're already going through the process of getting these classic jerseys designed, which, you know, which players, I think it's pretty much if a player wants to do it, they're going to do it for that player. Um, and you would imagine down the road this will be a football thing as well because you had some gr- great players from those 90s teams, from, you know, Julius Peppers early on in the early 2000s, that a lot of fans want those actual jerseys, not these refabricated with the modern logo that Peppers didn't wear the Argyle when he played for Carolina. That yeah, just didn't happen. yeah. If so, you're going to remake it, remake it um, with the jersey that he wore back then. So, yeah. so hopefully that happens down the road. I do know they are going to do it for Carolina basketball. Hopefully my man Marcus Page decides he wants his own jersey so I can go spend whatever they want to charge me to buy it. Yeah, you told me before we got on here that you didn't spend $80 on a polo shirt. I feel like no matter the price tag on the Marcus Page yeah. jersey, that will be purchased. I did spend $6 on a polo that will probably be seen the next time we're on camera. So what? Here's an interesting. What football jersey would you want the most if it became available? Because uh, we, so we we have one. So we've got. I've got a Sam Howell jersey. Yeah, that uh, was made. You know, there are companies that can make that for you illegally. Yeah, um, pro- probably TJ Yates because he was my first 
My yeah, first he's, quarterback. He's definitely up there, man. Um, at my middle school, because I was the only Tar Heel football fan where I went to high, uh, where I went to school, they called me TJ Yates. Didn't really make a whole lot of sense, but it I was, mean, he got a little bit of a Yates look you know, to you, so I he guess, was a, a little boyhood bit. idol, even though for teams that were going four and eight every year. Um, but so probably what? they went eight and five every year. Okay, let's probably, give them some credit. Probably Yates, or if you're going back even further, um, probably Dre Bly because he's currently yeah, on the staff now. That's a good one. And a big part of what this team's or the program's doing on the recruiting trail. Um, Julius Peppers, maybe if I was still a Carolina Panther fan, that had more meaning. But since I no longer support the hometown Carolina Panthers, I could really care less about that. There's a nice admission that will take down our uh, viewing numbers. Yeah, yeah, I would say, I mean, Yates is a good one. If I was going to get Bren Renner, I would have to get his early year one because I can't can't wear the – the ones that they wore in the mid 2010s yeah, yeah. era. That now horrific jerseys. Again, whoever came up with that idea, I have the helmet right here. But I, I, still, just not a great jersey design. Um, I mean, dude, Geo, right? Like that. That's that's got to be one. Like if that's available, that that's got to be one. I mean, he has the historic moment uh, against NC State. But I mean, you talk about a guy that probably would have broken program records if he stays four years I mean his first two years were unbelievable Um, and then if you go back to some of the older guys yeah I mean I'll tell you another one that I would really like and he was a guy that I think if he was and this is another podcast that we could do at a a different time I uh, I would be I, I would love to get me a Leon Johnson jersey yeah. He was a stud back in the early 90s, uh, a guy that had almost 5,000 yards of total offense in his time at Carolina. Just, I mean, an underappreciated running back. Everybody talks about Amos Lawrence, Kelvin Bryant, and rightfully so, Charlie Choo Choo Justice. But, man, Leon Johnson deserves a lot of respect. That would definitely be one if they came out with that one that I would have to track down uh, for myself. So, uh, actually, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get to the Twitter B first because – after that, we're going to go ahead and move on to the 12-team playoff. Yeah. So, uh, yesterday, you got into an argument on Twitter. Shockingly, <laughs> this is not with the Toriel fans. I wanted to argue with you about Mets baseball and how you shouldn't be talking about Mets baseball. Remember a couple years ago, <laughs> we had the fan that told me, you know, I would really appreciate it if you'd give up the Mets and just go ahead and talk about the Braves. Yeah, that's not going to happen. But uh, yesterday, this was actually an argument about Toriel football with a couple of fellow Tar Heel fans. Yeah. Um, so I'll let you kind of explain how this all began, the scenario behind this, because once again, shockingly, like the last edition of the podcast, it involves yet another coaches list that you're getting angry about. Yeah, not that I was angry about. The college football home guy who does a great job you know, promoting college football put out his top coaches in the ACC list, and he had Mac Brown ranked second with Bronco Mendenhall shortly right there behind behind him. And look, let me go on the record and say I do think Mac Brown is the second best coach in the ACC bar none, but the gap between him and Dabo Sweeney is rather large. All I made the point was that since Brockman and Hall got to Virginia, he's accomplished pretty much the same thing Mac Brown has had. He's taken UVA to an ACC championship game, which Mac Brown has not. He's taken UVA to an Orange Bowl, which Mac Brown just did. But more importantly, he's 2-0 against Mac Brown in games that certainly decided Carolina's fate in terms of winning the ACC Coastal back in 2019 when they came into Keenan Stadium and beat us. And last year when we lost up there um, on Halloween night, and those two losses have, you 
you know, took Carolina out of the running to play in the ACC championship game. So I just made the the point that if you're accounting everything, Bronco Mendenhall should be ranked ahead of Mac Brown. Do I think he sh- is a better coach than Mac Brown? No, but he's accomplished more than Mac Brown has while beating Mac Brown both times. Tar Heel fans simply. Did not like that opinion, which I can see that. But if you got to take the blinders off, quit being a homer. I get that he has a losing record at Virginia, but how many guys would have a winning record at Virginia? Not many coaches. Um, and this guy's beaten us twice with our Hall of Fame head coach on the sidelines. The guy deserves respect for what he's done. That's all I was Shouldn't saying. Shouldn't be over Mac though. Um, and you know, then this guy started saying that what Bronco Mendenhall is doing right now doesn't compare to what they did in the 80s and the 90s. I wasn't alive to watch the 80s and the 90s ACC football. Um, the ACC in those years were not good. It was ran by Florida State once they joined the league in the 90s. In the 80s, if you take away Clemson's national title in 81, that conference was an afterthought like they were in the mid-2000s in college football. But now the ACC is a much more respectable football conference. It's a lot deeper than it has been in years past. And Virginia has done a lot of good things under Bronco Mendenhall's watch. That's all I was saying. Um, and then they wanted to compare it to Larry Fedora. Well, Larry Fedora never made it to a – he made an ACC championship game. He never made a New Year's Six Bowl game. His team went 11-1 and one and even got ranked as high as 10. That's how highly thought of our Larry Fedora-led team was. So, look, all I'm saying is that Brockman is a hell of a coach and he deserves the recognition for what he's done at a job that not many coaches would go there and win. I'm going to go on record in saying Mac Brown would not go to Virginia and, and take them to the ACC championship game. Mark that down. Uh, no, he would. Yeah, he's a better coach than Bronco Mendenhall. And I'm going to be honest with you, I don't really think it's close. The problem that our fan base has that is that they can't take the blinders off. He's like, look, I love Mac Brown. You just, you just said, though, at the start of the argument that he is a better coach than Bronco yes. Mendenhall. But you just said that he would not take Virginia to nine wins. That doesn't make any sense. It, it's, it takes a special person to go into Dude, Virginia Mac and Brown get people there. Mac Brown would be perfect for Virginia. All right, well, let's let him he go to Virginia. He can recruit. Well, that's not going to happen. Let him go to Virginia. He can recruit the state of Virginia. He recruits the state of Virginia better than Bronco Mendenhall does, and he's at he's at North Carolina. He should. I mean, let's be honest here. Like Bronco Mendenhall, Bronco Mendenhall's winning with does two a good and job. Three star players. Bronco Mendenhall not going to win with two or three star players. He those are not two or three star players. Most of those guys are. I mean, you've got some four stars. Most of them are three star players. Mac Brown wouldn't have players. wouldn't have to win with three star players because he knows how to recruit. Bronco well, Mendenhall is not a good recruiter. And then they all also brought up the fact he's got a national championship. That was 16 years ago. Still on the resume, though. That is an afterthought. That was a different coaching career, and nobody, unless you are a college football junkie, remembers that Mac Brown's head coach of Texas. I mean, they remember that Vince Young made a— Then you shouldn't be in the argument. It's really that simple if you don't remember that. Vince Young made a run. They don't remember that— Mac Brown was coaching that team. Yeah, because I mean, his the fact that they were playing in that game had absolutely nothing to do with Mac Brown. The fact that Vince Young, Vince Young was became the best the quarterback player in college football that year because of being under Mac Brown. I wouldn't you, go that far. So you think that if Will Muschamp was the head coach of that team, they would have won the national championship? That I year. think with Vince Young, they still he still makes the play because he made the play. Wouldn't have been in the game though. Wouldn't wouldn't have even made that game if Will Muschamp was the head coach there. Wouldn't have, I mean, look at what they've been since he's left. Texas is a shell of itself. Look what they were the last four years he was there. You got we, they were dude. They were still better then than they are now. We you, their best seasons after Mac Brown 
are not even comparable to his worst seasons at the end of his career. We Texas have, is a dumpster fire. We have They're to, terrible. We have to take a. We have to remember what he did from. 82 when he got when he became head coach to whenever he retired. That's a different coaching career than what he's doing now. Same guy. It's the same guy. He retired. It still is in the it's argument. It's a different form of college it's a, football. It's a tiebreaker. Doesn't matter. He's still come back and had success. Look at the success that he's had. He's good taking the team to the Orange Bowl already. And lost. And we in made, year and, two. And, and we, we made a ring for it. I mean, look, that's a whole different argument. I, I'm not somebody that, that was really, uh, you know, pounding my chest over that. But, again, that was his decision. He knows his guys a little bit better than we do. Maybe, I mean, that's that's one of those things where you got to feel it out. What motivates your guys? I, I don't know. Giving them a ring for my losing thing, a bowl game? My thing is, is look. Probably got the wrong if, bunch if in there. We're, if we're talking about tiebreakers, when you go through and compare coaches that are close together, which I just said, I don't think Bronco Mendenhall is that close to him. I don't think Bronco Mendenhall is the third best coach in the ACC. I think Dave Clawson's a better coach than him because I think it's harder to win at Wake Forest than it is to win at Virginia. Uh, now, neither, neither job's easy, but Wake Forest is an unbelievably difficult job to win at. You talk about a team that does not bring in star power. Uh, Wake Forest does not – I mean, they do not recruit four stars that heavily. They can't. They, they, they just don't have the history. They, it, it's something that, you know, when you look at the development that he's been able to do with guys like, uh, you know, Sage Surratt, who, you know, if, if he ends up playing last year, he probably goes a lot higher in the NFL draft. You look at some of the guys like uh, Boogie Basham on the defensive side of the ball, he's done a great job there. Bronco Mendenhall, look, I, he has done uh, – the fact that he took Virginia to the ACC championship game was – was something. I mean, seriously, like, not saying he's a bad coach by any stretch of the imagination, but I think that there is a clear difference between Dabo Sweeney, Mac Brown, and the rest of the ACC coaches. And I think that, honestly, I think you're right. I think Dabo Sweeney is kind of in a category on his own. I think this, let's just put this out there. Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney are in their own category in yes. college football. There is nobody that is, there is another tier below them. And I'm going to be honest with you. There Mac is Brown's nobody not in that in tier that, either. No, he's not. That tier involves guys like Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley. Which makes that championship irrelevant because it was 16 years ago. If, you, if he's a third or fourth tier head coach in college football, that national title he won almost how two does, decades how does ago a tier, is not carrying weight. Yeah, that carries weight when, it go, when it's compared against a guy like James Franklin, who is probably going to be fired at the end of the season at Penn State. Uh, when you talk about Pat Fitzgerald, who's different, a good coach. Different era of won football. An, doesn't matter. Won the national championship. It doesn't matter that it happened in a different era of football. Nick Saban's first title happened in a different era of football. Yeah, but look Take that away from him. the playoff. Take that away from him, I guess. That one doesn't count. All the other ones count. And in the playoff, but that one he's still count. the best coach in the history of the sport. Dabo Sweeney's a top five coach in the history of the sport in the playoff era. I mean, so I'm assuming take off the Hall of Fame mantra from Mac Brown too. That doesn't count. This is a different Mac Brown. It is a different so Mac Brown. So he's not a Hall of Famer. This right Mac now, Brown, no. this Mac Brown is a 15 and 10 startup coach that really isn't all that good. He's Mac Brown 2.0. 
Wait, but well, it that's not how it works. That, that, that is how that it works. That doesn't so if a so if a player was to retire and come back, that player is 2.0. All their stats go out the window. In Hall of Fame consideration, the second part of your career does not count, right? Unless you do what Michael Jordan did and win three straight NBA championships. But that doesn't no, that doesn't matter. He retired though, right? So that's he, that's Michael Jordan 2.0. So and you he should came compare back. the two. So that means yeah. that Michael Jordan 1.0 should be in the Hall of Fame. Separate resume for Michael Jordan 2.0. Yeah, he had two separate Hall of, Hall of Fame, Fame careers. I mean, I, that's I, that's not how you see it. Well, because then that would mean LeBron James is the greatest player of all time because you're separating the two Jordans because no, he had a retirement what, in between them. What Jordan did in both of his careers has been more uh, accomplished than what LeBron's going to do in one career. So you're career. saying the one car- the first part of his career would be more impressive, which we're not going to get into this argument. That would be more impressive than what LeBron's done. Yes. God, oh, yes. my God. The NBA was tougher then. Uh, not even, not even, that's not even I mean, a that's, comparison. That, I, I, that's a totally different argument. But that's the thing. It's still, it's still part of his resume. It's something that has to be factored in. But again, how much you factor it in is y'all that, put, that, that y'all really put a lot of weight into that national title and he's a Hall of Famer. I don't. I mean, it, if you because if, that if was a different career. If you're putting if you're putting tiebreakers with with the guys that he that are around him in terms of the national rankings, especially with a guy like Bronco Mendenhall, I'm going to take the college football Hall of Famer and the guy that won a national championship over a guy that won nine games at Virginia and apparently should have a statue built for him. He actually should have a statue. I, I mean, he's I mean he's he's an above average coach. I mean, seriously, we're 15 like, and 10. Or we that's that's an above average two years. And still better than Virginia. I mean, they went not, five and five last year. They were not a good. They were not a great football team Hall, last year. Carolina would have made you, the ACC do championship see, do you see, in a normal season. Is Nick Saban, Dabo Sweeney, Ryan Day, Lincoln Riley are they losing to the Virginias of their conference? We're not comparing him because no. nobody's putting him in that category. If you think that. Mac Brown is better than Lincoln Riley right now or Ryan Day. I, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. He's not in that. He's not in that category. Mac, that tier Mac is Brown 2.0 is still a work in progress, and the jury is. So you would put him probably in the mid 40s or 50s in terms. No, of No, he's still a top 15, 20 head coach in the country, which is better than what Bronco Mendenhall is. Bronco Mendenhall is not anywhere close to a fifth, top 15. He is probably in the 30s in terms of coaches. You go find me a guy that can take Virginia to an AC championship game, and then we can Dave Clawson would do the same exact thing that he's done there. I don't think. No doubt in my Dave mind. Dave Clawson can't beat Boston College on an annual basis. I don't think he's making an AC championship game at Virginia. Well, we'll see. I mean, uh, I think clearly Mac Brown is the number two coach in the ACC. You I think said, Bronco Mendenhall is? I said no. I, I think Matt Brown is the second best. I just made the argument. How that do you Bron- make the Hall's- argument then for Bronco Mendenhall? If you think that he's a better when coach. You're, when you're comparing what they've both done, he's he's outdone Mac in the two years since Mac came back because he's beaten them both times. When you compare all they've accomplished. I, I mean, again, look at all they've accomplished. Bronco Mendenhall didn't make an Orange Bowl game. so Yes, he did. And got well. Well, he did, and got his ass kicked. So he still did it. Almost, Carolina went out there. Basically, nobody that was on the team to start the year got a, and and uh, I mean held their own. They had a chance to win the game, and he got destroyed and in we, the Orange Bowl game. And, and we we made a we made a ring for losing an Orange Bowl game. That's where we are. It is what it is. I mean, Virginia probably made a ring as well. I so don't, don't think they did. 
Uh, so we move on to uh, the 12-team playoff that apparently Mac Brown will probably never make. Uh, probably not. Mac Brown says that his players are not in favor of the 12-team playoff. Uh, said that in a press conference the other day. We actually have that quote for you guys here. Uh, take a listen to uh, what he had to say when asked a question by Andrea Adelson of ESPN. So basically the main points there are that, uh, you know, Carolina, a lot of the players uh, basically said that the big concern is 17 games being played in a season. Uh, Also, uh, a lot of guys, you know, concerned that there are not 12 teams every year that are worthy of playing in uh, a college football playoff. And then the one that I think is probably the most interesting comment is the fact that some players still believe that guys that will be NFL NFL bound would end up sitting out despite there being a playoff. Uh, they don't think it's really going to affect it. Basically, they think it's going to be exactly like uh, it is now with the bowl games. Uh, that one I find a little bit hard to believe, but I, I do think that. <laughs> I mean, some of these other ones I think are definitely justified. They definitely have some legitimate concerns when it comes to the college football playoff. First off, you got to love their transparency because for Carolina to make the playoff, the playoff's going to have to expand because they're never going to take down Clemson. Um, they are right that most years are – since they went to the playoff format, there have not been 12 teams worthy of playing for a national championship. The most has ever been in a given year is probably six, so they're right about that. Um the, the, the amount of the games being played, you want to fix that, cut the regular season down to 10 games, that the most you're playing, what, probably 14 or 15 if you make the national title game. What you're doing now with the 12 regular season games, your conference title game, and then the playoff, but they're not going to do that because they're not going to lose the money that comes with playing all those uh, all those extra non-conference games, which are home games, which is how the athletic departments make money. Um, and I think I think if, if, if players sit out then when you've got a 12-team playoff, then there's nothing you can do. You've expanded the field. You've made the four non-playoff uh, bowl games. You've made them now playoff games. They still sit out. There's nothing you can do. You've already gave them the incentive to play in an Orange Bowl if it's not a playoff game or the, the Rose Bowl if it's not a playoff game. So I think that's out of their control. If those guys are being advised to sit out, they're going to do that anyway, and you can't really – argue with them because they're protecting their future, which is millions and millions of dollars. But I do think the amount of people like – I don't think Diami Brown would have sat out last year if that was a playoff game. Javante Williams would have suited up if it was a playoff game. So if that still happens, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, that that point I think is, is one that – there's so many layers to that because there's so many different – guys and and different steps that you've got to go through when you make that decision. You know, if you make that decision for a bowl game, you know, you tell your coach, you tell your family, you tell the NFL scouts, tell all those guys. Then you go up and tell your teammates. If you stand up in front of them and tell them I'm sitting out a bowl game, most yeah. guys are going to say, okay, well, it's... it's Remember a- when, like, Ryan Switzer sent out the Sun Bowl and yeah. a lot of our fan base flipped out? Who gives a crap about the Sun Bowl? Dude, I'm going to tell you Only what... Only people in El Paso care. I, I'm going to tell you what bowl games that right now during the playoff era are not being played as part of the playoff are. They are a college football game with a luxury vacation tagged onto it. 
That's the that's all they are. They don't mean a damn thing. When you ask, when you hear coaches talk about making a bowl game, what's the one thing they talk about? The extra fifteen practices they get to prepare for yep. that bowl game. They pretty much that's that's when spring ball now starts. Is and that was right there because. Uh, a lot of times, your starters that are NFL bound are not going to play, so the guys they're that, at least not going to practice. Right, if they play in the game; they ain't going to practice. So much. they pretty much start getting ready for their spring ball at the bowl game. That's the only benefit to these bowl games. Right. The only team that the, the only teams that may look to come and prove something are teams that finish fifth or sixth that believe that they should have been in the playoff. And you can rally around that thought on your team of let's go there and prove that we should have been in. Or, Other than or that, a group of five faced up against a power. Right, right, yeah, that's that, definitely. That that's that's another really good point. But I mean. <sighs> Yeah, other than that, like, look, it's going to be a lot different if you're trying to make that decision. Look, I you, it, I don't think it's all that difficult to go in. I mean, it's probably pretty difficult to go in and tell your coach that. But, you know, that's one thing. Telling the NFL scouts, that's that's another. I mean, you brought up the point that some of those guys may push you down the board a little Absolutely. bit. I think it really just depends on what your talent level is. If you're a top 10 pick, they ain't going to care if you're playing the ball game or not. They, they really don't. Well, but if not, you're a mid-round guy. Not if it's guy, a Sun Bowl, but if it's a playoff game and you're sitting that out, that, that, well, that's, that, will, that will affect your draft. That's box. what I'm saying. If you tell them that for a normal bowl game, then yeah. Uh, but the main thing that I, that I think most guys would be concerned with is not only do you have to tell all those guys, then you got to go in front of your teammates and say, hey guys, guess what? I've been with you guys all season. We've gotten to the playoff. We have a chance to win a championship. Don't say, well, you know, can their 12th team really beat the number? It doesn't matter. You are in the playoff. If you're in it, you at least have a shot. It, it, I mean, that's that's how it works. So you would then stand up in front of your teammates and say, you know what, guys, we got here, we worked hard. I'm going to sit the game out, though. I'm going to go ahead and pursue an NFL career. I'm going to be honest with you. There may be a couple of guys that do that. I don't think it's going to be that many because I really feel like a lot of guys will realize I, I get a chance to play for a championship and I get, you know, I get to do it with a team that I've helped lead to this point. I am going to play in a playoff game. And also, when you look at the NCAA tournament, the players that excel, they improve their draft stock. The same thing happens in college football in this playoff now. These guys that perform on the big stage, you're, you have a chance to improve your draft stock. Now, guys like Joe Burrow, Trevor Lawrence, now those guys were bona fide number one picks regardless. But some of these other guys, the difference between Well, they wouldn't a, have set out a playoff game, though, because they knew they could win a championship. Like, the difference between being the number seven pick and the number 25 pick in terms of money in the NFL was pretty drastic. And the chance to improve your draft stock and, ex, and earn an extra four to five million dollars to get a much more bigger signing bonus, you're not going to pass that up if the playoff is expanded. And if they are, then it's out of your control because that's what their their parents, his agent or whether he's already gonna, you know, his advisors are telling him not to. The biggest reason why players are sitting out now is because they get that information back from the NFL people early. And the NFL people are telling them don't play. That's what happened with Javante Williams yep. and Michael Carter. The NFL told them you can't put a better game off tape than what you did against Miami. You don't need to go play. We said that. The worst thing that happened for them was that game against Miami. Yeah. In terms of them playing in 
that bowl game for tar, like for Tariel fans. So everyone wants so, to get mad at the players, and you know that's part of it as well. You got to get mad at the NFL for their people telling them there's no reason for you to play because your draft and is, that happens, your draft stock is what it is. That happens with all of these guys, and I mean you've seen it. It happens with guys that are mid round picks, and you'll end up seeing them drop. You know from where most mock drafts predict them, you'll see them drop into the fourth or fifth round, and some of those guys are probably sitting there saying to themselves, "Well, why did I drop?" You think that agent, you know what that agent will say to him? Well, he still made the NFL, right? Yep, he's still getting 10%. You know, also, I mean, it doesn't really matter because here's the thing. That agent, it doesn't care. Once He, he, he don't care about you. He's moving on to the next guy the next year, starting to look at some of those guys, some of his next targets that he can pick out. That's how the NFL works. That's how the NBA works as well. That's how it's the life same works. thing, that's, man. That's how the real they're world trying works. to. They are their goal, their job is to try to convince you to go ahead and leave early. And, and you know, it's just part of it. It's something that you've got to deal with. It's been a part of you know the NFL and and the NBA for a while now, and it's going to continue to be. There's yeah. no way to really fix that. It's just, it's just part of it. Um, but I don't. I, I think with the playoff, there would be a lot more hesitancy to say, look, I'm going to sit out. But yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll see because it's inevitable that this is going to happen. The point that I think was definitely justified, though, was the point of 12 games being too many. And this is the quote from Jeremiah Gimmel. He said this uh, apparently in a phone interview uh, to Andrea Adelson for the column that she wrote on this. Uh, He said, quote, I feel like 12 games is too many games in a season for players who want to play long-term football. 16, 17 games in a season is a lot of wear and tear on the body, especially for guys who don't come out when they're playing. I think this is one that, I mean, look, he says that he's speaking for a lot of other guys. I think that last part definitely comes from him and and, and maybe some of the other guys, especially like a a guy like his linebacker teammate from a year ago, Chad Surratt, I mean, those guys never came off the field. And I think that that is a point that is very justified. When the NFL schedule extended their regular season by one game, you had national pundits up in arms about the fact that these guys were going to have to play an extra game. For college football, you're adding teams that win national championships play 15. You're adding two extra games, and it seems like all the national media is relatively quiet on this argument. I don't my, I, I don't get it. My argument to Jeremiah Gimmel or get with his statement is tell your coach to have to develop better depth. Um, that's just playing devil's advocate. But I think science has proven the more times you're on the field, the greater chance you have to get hurt. And Definitely. if they're not getting paid to be on the field, they shouldn't be on the field more times than they have to be. So you've got to find a way to find what works financially. And you can make it work financially with 10 regular season games, a conference title game, and the playoff. Because all the TV money isn't in those non-conference games. It's in the conference games. It's, it's, where, it's why they spend the money. That's why they all, have a, they all have a deal with the network. That's where all the money is. So you play nine conference games, and you get one game against an either. You can still be a power five or even a group of five. But then you take out the two games, so now you're still playing at the most 15 games to get your national champion. That's how you solve it. They're not going to because they don't want to lose those millions and millions of dollars. But that's how you fix it if 
you know, if, if, if you really care about the student athletes. Well, so, so here's the thing with the 10 game schedule. I think it's great. They played 10 games for how long? It worked out extremely well for college football. Like you said, conference games are where the money is at. You can see that if you just look at the ticket prices for conference games, yep. individual games, as opposed to the out of conference games. The only argument that a lot of people are going to have, and I, you, th- this is the argument that you're going to hear, is well, what happens to those games like Georgia, Georgia Tech, Florida, Florida State? You're going to play that game every year. You're going to lose that rivalry. Let's be real honest here. Are either one of those rivalries really ones that you want to live and die on in terms of playing at a conference? I mean, I don't. The only one that I mean, there's ones maybe USC and Notre Dame, but like. I don't I, – there's not are, many that you can put in there. Rivalries but, are important, and, you know, you take away a Clemson, South Carolina. You, t- you, you take those away from the states. They mean a lot. If those schools want to play each other, they'll play each other whether it's in September or whether it's on Thanksgiving weekend. But you play 10 games. You probably get two buys in a week or, or in the season, so you're getting the players healthy. You're keeping them more healthy, more fresh. Your product will probably be a lot more watchable week in, week out, because we can all agree the college football product we get right now is not good. It's it's highly unwatchable for most conferences uh, and, and most games week in, week out, because they take so damn long. You find a way to... You, you, you can make the product better. You, there's more with less. If you play less games, you're going to get better football and everything like that. Yeah, you mentioned one of my biggest points there. You, you touched on it really quickly. The, the easiest way to shorten the game, shorten the snap count, is quit stopping the clock after every first down. You don't need that. Stop the clock inside of two minutes of every half. Other than that, do not stop the clock for first downs. I get that you want offense. It's it's fantastic. Uh, we've gotten to the point now where, look, we've seen the offense that we need to. I don't care how much they are. St- if you are that good of an offensive team, you're still going to score. You're points. still going to score. It's it's been shown. It's been shown at the NFL level. It's this is getting over the top with how long some of these games are taking, and that's a whole different issue. But it ties in with this. If you take away all of those stoppages on first downs, where teams can run up and take one or two seconds off the clock, I mean, you've seen the pace slow down a little bit from like you know back when Oregon made it popular to literally try to take a snap as early as you possibly could every snap, but. It's still, I mean, you would limit the snap counts on a lot of these guys. Um, And I think that would be, first of all, you know, it would be great for the players. It would limit, you know, the any you know CTE damage. Hopefully, that they would have. And look, that's a legitimate conversation that needs to be had. It's something that's been had over the last few years, and I think it's something that still needs to be present and needs to be talked about going forward because it it, it is a real issue in college football uh, heading into the NFL and when these guys get on you know later in life. It's something that needs to be addressed, and it's got to start not only at the college level but at the high school level too you've got to be able to limit that contact to limit those types of head injuries but I I, I don't understand how it's that simple to see that 
from our perspective, and yet nobody does anything about it. I mean, a- am I wrong in thinking that that is the easiest solution? Like, I, the 10-game thing is is something, but there are some roadblocks with that, as we talked about. There are literally no roadblocks to short to taking away the stop of, of the clock after the first downs. I mean, well, what are you eliminating? I'm not getting it. Which is why I, I've been on record saying that the product isn't watchable because they're not, they're not making the product better. College basketball identified the issues with their product, and they've taken the steps to make it more enjoyable to watch. These complaints have been being had in college football for a decade, and nothing's been done. Yeah, and one of the biggest issues is they don't listen to their players. We'll see, and, and you know, I, I, I heard today they were talking to uh, Dory Noka on the morning show, um, who's a guy that works for the SEC Network, and he said that, look, there may be other guys that have this this stance, but there are probably a lot of other teams around the country, especially in some of these group of five conferences, everything like that, that they will be in favor of the 12-team playoff. And look, if they are, that's great. But here's the thing. If there are this, if there are a lot more outspoken players against this format, then I mean, you've got to take these guys' opinion. They are the guys that are playing. That's one of the things that college basketball has done is taken the opinions of the guys who, even if they're not current players, are recent former players and coaches on how to make their game better. It seems like college football just wants to ignore that. They want to do the things that they want to do to produce offense and produce these high-scoring games. And I think at some point it's like, look, we love seeing scoring, but at the same time, we don't want to have to go to a game that takes four hours and you know potentially has our, our offensive tackle or our middle linebacker playing 112 snaps on, on a Saturday. That, I mean, that's something that I think they've, they've definitely got to look at. Uh, it's an interesting conversation. That's one that I think just has so many levels. And here's the other thing really quickly with the conversation before we move on. Most people thought that basically what the players were saying is, well, you know, we want to stay at at four. No, that wasn't really the gist of what most players were saying. Most guys in the locker room, according to what Jeremiah Gimmel told uh, Adelson of ESPN, was that they want this to be a six or eight team playoff. They feel like 12 teams aren't deserving. Jeremiah Gimmel, uh, I, I... clicked off the page here real quick, so I'll just summarize it. Basically said that, look, last year they lost to Virginia and Florida State. Most of the guys in the locker room feel like those losses, you shouldn't be playing for a national title. And you shouldn't. And there's other teams, like, you know, probably down in that same area, like Indiana. That would have been a team that last year would have made the playoff in the 12-team playoff. Indiana lost their starting quarterback, Michael Penix, who wouldn't have been able to play in the playoff. So that team would have probably gotten absolutely obliterated in the college football playoff. And that's the thing. Do you really think – I mean, look, what Indiana did last year was great. They had a phenomenal season. Tom Allen is a tremendous head coach. He does not get enough respect for how good of a coach he is. Do you really think that team deserved to be playing for a college football playoff national championship? Because I don't. No. And and look – I want I, I want to expand. I think like you said, so far with what we've seen, six is probably the most competitive playoff. The best playoff for the sport in general and to sort of compensate with what other people want would be eight because you would get the five conference champions, the top group of five team, and two wild card teams. But ultimately, it's like we said earlier, this is going to be a 12-team playoff. Like if it, Money. 
it's there's too much money in this. There's too much involvement. There, there are way too many people that are now going to be brought in uh, to the fray that wouldn't have been brought into the fray if it stays, you know, a four-team playoff, six, or even eight. Um, and look, I, I like the inclusion part of it, but I definitely think that these, these players, they do have a point. Um, one thing that I think is also an, an interesting thing uh, when we were talking about this uh, a little bit that I never brought up, uh, I, I do think that one of the factors is going to be when guys get out there and get to play a playoff game in front of the home crowd, potentially, eh, could, that, could, that could have a little bit of an influence. Yeah. Can you imagine a playoff game in Keenan? Can you imagine a home playoff game in you know, an environment like, uh, you know, a few years ago when Washington was good, go, a, a home playoff game in Autzen Stadium out there in Oregon. I mean, that would be that that would be special stuff to watch. So we'll, we'll, we'll wait and see. Uh, it feels like that's that's coming. But again, as we've noted, the NCAA doesn't move quick on things. So you never really know. Well, let's move on from those controversial topics that have got everybody probably fired up to uh, talking about the wide receiver and tight end groups. Not that you won't get fired up about this, but I think it's going to be more of a breakdown than anything else. And, uh, you know, look, this this group lost a lot from a year ago uh, in terms of production. There's no denying that. You lose uh, Deami Brown back-to-back 1,000-yards receiving seasons. Uh, you lost, you know, Daz Newsome 1,000 yards two years ago. This past year, a uh, little over 650 yards receiving uh, and you know definitely a guy that I think doesn't get talked about enough for how highly rated he is on some of the all-time uh, you know receiving boards uh, in Carolina history but you know this is uh, this is a group that still looks to be in pretty good shape and uh, it's led by Bo Corrales who is coming back from injury so unlike or uh, like the running back group there is some noticeable depth at this position there is some noticeable talent in this position as well. The problem that you're having outside of Bo Corrales and maybe Choffrey Brown, there's not a lot of experience in this receiving core, like the problem with the running backs once you take away the transfer of Ty Chandler. I mentioned these that's because the success of this of our wide receivers, will depend heavily on how good Carolina can run the football. If Carolina can run the football like we expect them to be able to do in October and November, then Bo Corrales, Choffrey Brown, those guys can have big seasons. They can get to six, 800-yard receivings, maybe double-digit touchdowns. If not, and you're leaning on Sam Howell to sling the ball 40, 50 times, and we trust Sam Howell to throw the football, it'll be easier to take away – the passing game, you would imagine, because they can game plan for that. With that said, though, this isn't like 2018 when we lost all that receiving talent, like when we lost Buck Howard, we lost Matt Cowles, all those guys were you had a lot of unproven and not really guys worthy of starting at, at Division One level in the ACC for you. Carolina has starting talent one through nine on their football roster, in my opinion. So they've got the talent. They just got to work and get the experience. And that's why fall camp, that's why spring ball is really important for this group. Fall camp is really important for this group because when you go to Virginia Tech, that's, I mean, you're starting off with a bang with a a team that knows how to play you and an environment that's going to be one of the best you're going to be in all year long. Um, But you've got the guys that this this passing game shouldn't take the drop off that many schools would suffer losing two 1,000-yard guys. Yeah, and look, I mean, you're putting it in 
in the hands of a guy that's been pretty successful for you before in Bo Corrales. He's going to be the leader of the group. Uh, last year, you know, only played in four games before the injury. Uh, got injured in the game against Florida State. Had 13 receptions, 238 yards, and a touchdown. Not fantastic numbers, but remember, when he got injured in that game against Florida State, that was, uh, you know, a career game for him. And, uh, I mean, gets the sports hernia injury, has the surgery, uh, was limited a bit in spring, but really was able to get pretty close to 100% towards the end. So it looks like he's going to be ready to go for fall camp and ready to go for the season. Uh, and, and, you know, you look back to that 2019 season that he had, and man, uh, 40 catches, 575 yards, and six touchdowns. And, and as I mentioned, that was a season where Deami Brown had 1,000 yards receiving. And Daz Newsom had 1,000 yards yep. receiving. To go on top of him with 575 yards receiving, um, I think you know one of the things that you saw a little bit last year, and it'll probably be somewhat similar this year, as long as some of these younger guys can step up, I think the distribution of the yards will be a little bit more spread out than just three guys. But you never really know. I still feel like Bo Corrales is going to be your guy that is probably ideally going to lead you in receiving and he's going to be the guy that's going to lead you in touchdown receptions because this is the one big thing that Carolina gets back in him is the fact that he is your red zone receiver. Yeah, and I think that's that's really important. I don't know if Carolina's going to be able to hit the deep ball like they were the last couple years with De'Ami Brown. This may be an offense that works from the 20 to the 20, but once they get inside the 20-yard line, it helps knowing you got a guy like Bo Corrales that you can throw the football to, and Sam Howell knows he can go make a play. He did it in the opener against South Carolina two years ago in Charlotte. He, he has the knack for making plays up in the air to go catch the football, and that's really important because – you know, then you can kind of scheme around it with all your other guys on certain routes to get those guys open. But, you know, it's I, I'm, I'm with you. I do think the distribution is going to be a little bit more even because I think it has to be. Right? Like, I don't think... Well, there's going to be a lot of rotation still. Like, I, I don't... Unless Choffrey Brown or Emory Simmons just comes out and has an unbelievable fall camp and really separates themselves... Uh, you know, from the rest of the pack, I just it's going to be too easy. You're going to be rotating guys, and I you want to do that. Thing anyways. is that there's not going to be a significant drop off with the rotation. Right, right. I I agree with that. I definitely think. I mean, you saw it a little bit in the spring game that they they've got a lot of guys that they can put out there that can make plays. Um, I mean, one of them, first of all. You know, talk about losing Daz Newsom in the slot. I mean, it's going to hurt because he's a productive guy, played with a lot of emotion, but he got a guy that does the exact same thing and is probably one of the most purely talented wide receivers that the Tar Heels have ever brought in in Josh Downs that's taken over for him in the slot. Josh Downs started one game a year ago. That was the Orange Bowl game against Texas A&M. He had his best receiving game of the year, had 94 yards receiving and uh, two touchdowns in that game. He, on the season, had seven catches the entire season. Three of them went for touchdowns. And, I I mean, look, not only – I mean, you you mentioned this, you know, when we were talking about it a little bit. He is a guy that can help you sort of – or he had 91 yards receiving in that game against Texas A&M on four catches. That's what I got mixed up there. But still an extremely productive night. The thing is, though, he will occasionally help you hit that long ball. You still need that guy on the outside that can do that. But he can help you do that. 
he's going to be a reliable option for you on third down. I mean, you'll have Bo Corrales there as well, which is great because he's got the experience. You know, Downs hasn't had a ton of pressure on him yet, so we still have to wait and see how he performs under that. But, I mean, all indications are that Carolina's got a really special guy in Josh Downs. He is going to be a guy that come October, every talking head in college football is going to be talking about him. Him and Sam Howell have the potential to be a lethal connection for the once they're going to be playing together with him being a, a starter. Um, and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. The Orange Bowl is just a glimpse of what we're going to get for 12 games with him this year because you're right. He has star potential written all over him. He has the potential, depending on how long he stays and the quarterbacks he plays with, he can break and set some records here. He's that talented. I agree with that. Um, yep. And if you talk and you followed him, when you, 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 you're a big recruiter, the recruiting uh, people loved him coming out of high school. The people last year that just saw him in the film from the A&M game, they've been talking about him going into spring this year. They've seen him in spring ball. So now a lot of national people know who Josh Downs are, or a lot of Tario fans may not. That should tell you, the that should speak volumes about the kind of kid we have in this receiving core. He's going to make a lot of plays for Carolina. He's going to be a lot of fun to watch. And, uh, and Carolina needs him to be good because if he if he's not good, I think the passing game will not be good. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, I, I, there are other guys, there are plenty of other options, but it really feels like he's one of those guys that Carolina fans and, and really just you know people around the program are expecting uh, is going to be a really, really great player. And there's nothing indicating that he won't be from what we've seen from him yeah. so far. Um, you talk about you know the other position on, that that's open, left behind by Deami Brown, and and this is a big one. I, I got to admit, this is uh, even with the running backs being taken into consideration. I think this is the position that worries me the most that they have to fill for this 2021 season because Deami Brown did so much for you. In terms of being that third down receiver, I think getting Bo Corrales back helps. As I mentioned, I think Josh Downs has the ability to help you there. But I think the biggest area of concern right now is that when this Carolina offense is at its best, and I know it was a different system, but I feel like this system under Phil Longo is still the same. We saw it at the end of the Larry Fedora era. Once they lost Mac Hollins in the middle of that 2016 season, that offense was nowhere near as explosive up until the end of his tenure at Carolina as it was in that 2015 and early part of the 2016 season when that offense was one of the best in the country. The last two years, Carolina has had one of the best passing offenses in the country, especially in terms of deep throws down the field. That's the area where they have made the most plays. And I think with a guy like Sam Howell, with a guy that thrives as much as he does in the deep passing game, you've got to find that next guy that takes over for De'Ami Brown. I think the guy that probably sticks out as the most obvious to take over for him is his little brother. Joffrey Brown is the guy that most people are going to look at. Uh, he's got the speed. I mean, look, he's faster than his brother. He's got, I mean, talk about track speed. He's got it. He's yeah. one of the fastest players on this team, if not the fastest. Also, another thing to tag on to Josh Downs there, got some speed too. So, yeah. you know, he's just just to continue to show how complete of a player he is. Um but Chaffrey, you know, we saw him last year with the football in his hand. He made some plays. I think the biggest concern with him 
is one that was a concern early on with Diami as well, which was holding on to the football. If he can limit the drops, and if he could stay healthy, he had an injury, was banged up in the spring, missed most of sp- most of the spring, but is expected to be back for the fall. And I, I think from everything that they were saying back in the spring, looks like he's going to be 100%. I think if he gets that th- those drops corrected, he has a chance to be a really good player. He does. Um, I want to touch on what you said about the deep the, the deep throw. Mm-hmm. That's where it, it, the running backs play a part in this. If Carolina can run the football, the stage will creep down in the box, and we know we love to run that long play action where Sam will hold it, pull it back, and throw it and dump it over all the defense's head. If Carolina can't run the football, you're not going to have that deep threat, in my opinion, anyway. So we may not have that in September, but if you have that in October when you got to play Miami and you got to play Florida State and you got to go to Notre Dame, that's when you want to have that a part of your offense humming, um, but Trophy Brown is the guy that we're expecting to take the next step because he's got all the physical attributes like you just mentioned. Um, once he just takes care of the drop seeds, he'll be, you know, that, that that's the one question about him. Hold on to the ball because when he gets the ball in his hands, he is a grown man. He has the ability to grab a defender's jersey, throw him to the ground, and make plays after the catch. Are you a grown man? Yes. Drop seeds. I am a grown what man. It, what? That was the worst phrasing I've ever heard on this on this podcast. Um, I mean, I think the the, the key to it as well with your your deep threat wide receivers is when you get these you know plays where teams end up blitzing your quarterback you get this one-on-one man coverage you got to be able to, to to beat your defender and make plays he's got the speed to do it like you said if if he can cut out the dropsies whatever yeah. uh he will uh I'm, he has a chance to definitely be a special player when we talk about Emory Simmons we got to talk consistency I think that's the biggest thing with them um you know and we're talking in games we're talking about that game against Notre Dame makes one of the best catches that we've seen in a while from a Tario receiver it was a video game like catch <laughs> turns around didn't hear from him the rest of the day though so that's the biggest thing for him because I think he's got the ability to take the top off the defense to be honest with you watching him coming out of high school, I thought he was a very complete receiver. Yeah. But I think it's just, and this is, Mac Brown talked about it as well in the spring. It's about, can he be that consistent player play in and play out? He has to be, um, because if not, he'll probably transfer, or the coaching staff, like he's a guy yeah. that the coaching staff would go to and say, because Mac Brown's been pretty upfront about this. If you don't have a role for us, we will help you go find somewhere else. Which would be really disappointing because of how much time that staff spent flipping his recruitment. That was a big get for Carolina when they flipped his recruitment from Penn State Definitely. to Definitely. UNC. So they believe in him. He just hasn't held up his end of the bargain. I'm a big fan of Emory Simmons. I've been waiting for him to break out. I think I think this is his chance for because the depth chart's a little more it's a little more open for him to if, if he performs he'll get the chance. I think you know he's proven that he can go make plays that a lot of guys on this roster can't simply make. Not many guys would make that catch he made against Notre Dame last season. Right. Um, and so and you got Sam Howell and as we mentioned the ball's gonna be spread out more. There's gonna be more chances for him to produce. Hopefully he does produce because he has all the natural gifts in the world to be a big-time playmaker on the perimeter for this Carolina offense. Well, one guy that gets another shot as well, and one that could be his last shot, is Anto 
Marshawn Green, the senior wide receiver from uh, you know Rockledge, Florida. You know Carolina got him, and that was another one of those guys that when they got him, you know, late in the Larry Fedora era, he was seen as a big recruit. He came in, uh, took over in the game against Syracuse his freshman season, showed some good things, and then ends up breaking his ankle. Comes in the next year, ends up winning the starting job over a guy that we talked about earlier in this podcast as being the best wide receiver on this roster probably this year in Bo Corrales, but you know, goes in, plays you know well against South Carolina, but him and Bo were sort of splitting time there. Still got the start in the next game against Miami, but then hurts himself with an undisclosed injury, lower body injury, and then we didn't see him a lot the rest of the year. He was banged up pretty much the rest of the year. Last year was probably his healthiest season, but there just really wasn't a role for him because you know Bo Corrales had sort of taken over the starting spot there, and then even you know once. Bo went down with the injury, you saw guys like Choffrey Brown and Emory Simmons who appeared to have stepped over him on the depth chart. But now, we saw him in the spring game. He had a pretty significant role there. And it looks like he's going to at least get another shot here. And he could be a factor here as well because he's shown at times that he can take the top off of the defense as well. He's another guy, though. Gotta catch the football. Yeah, gotta catch the football. The best part about him is his size. He's 6'2". He gives Carolina some length on that perimeter to go and just get the thing. And there may be a couple of times this year where Carolina just has to throw the ball and say, you go make a play. He has the ability to go do that. We've seen him do that, uh, but the injuries have really just really hampered his whole entire career since he arrived mm-hmm. in Chapel Hill. He's also a guy that he's been around. He's a senior, so he knows this offense pretty much inside and out. He's a guy that could be a good possession receiver on third downs when you got a third and seven. He knows how to get to the, the first down marker, cut his route off, and make a play. Um, just a lot of things that he brings that are valuable if he's on the field. Yeah, and then, you know, you move on to the guy that's probably the dark horse in this conversation, and that's true freshman J.J. Jones, uh, a guy that Carolina went into the state of South Carolina to get, an extremely talented young player. He was only a three-star coming out, but he was a guy that I thought should have definitely been a four-star. And, you know, throwing on his film, he does a lot of things really, really well, and he reminds me in some ways of what Deami Brown was for Carolina. He likes, you know, being able to get down the field and especially working against, you know, these corners in those one-on-one routes. He really is able to take advantage of that. He's got good speed. The thing is, though, he can go up and get the football as well. So he's another guy that you could look at as one of the more complete guys. I think the biggest thing for him is is coming in as a true freshman, trying to climb the depth chart against guys that have been in the system for a while. How settled into the system is he, and how much was he able to learn in the spring to take some of that pressure off of him in the fall. The good thing is is that we've talked about it since we've been on this podcast. Wide receiver is a position that experience it, it does have value, but freshman starting at, at you know at the Washington isn't unheard of making big plays and being stars in the sport Definitely. now are unheard of. If you follow recruiting very closely, you know Carolina's bringing in Gavin Blackwell, Kobe Paysauer, and JJ Jones. That's your next crop of a trio. Of watch receivers are going to make big plays in this passing offense, whether it's with Sam Howell this year or Drake May in the years to come. JJ Jones is a guy that you know being South Carolina, we got to see a little bit more closely than we maybe some other guys that weren't close to this area. He's a stud. And he's a gamer. He loves, you know, he loves the spotlight. And he's not going to be afraid of the moment. I think he will produce for Carolina in big moments this season. Yeah, well, hey, that's bold, man. That's bold. I definitely think he's a guy that's going to be right in there. I think at the least, he will 
He will see snaps at some point this yes. season. He will be a rotational guy at the least for them. Talked about Gavin Blackwell, and one of the more interesting conversations here when it comes to the wide receivers. So, you know, of course, that that starting outside spot is interesting, but I think that backup. Uh, job in the slot behind Josh Downs is one that's not getting talked about a whole lot, but is very, very interesting because you've got a guy in Steven Gosnell, uh, you know, former wide receiver for East Surrey High School, former high school teammate of Jefferson Boaz. <laughs> I don't know what that was, some update. Uh, I just said that, and I just realized that the people at home probably can't hear yeah, that. Only we hear can that. hear that, so they have no idea what we're talking about. Um, but uh, Steven Gosnell, uh, you know, he was a guy that, looking at him in high school, could do a lot of things after the catch. Another explosive guy. But then you get to Gavin Blackwell. You're looking at a guy that is a tremendous route runner. Uh, he's a guy that I think is going to do a lot of really good things for Carolina, whether it's now or in the future. There is a lot to like about this young man. It feels only like a matter of time before he gets on the field. I think the biggest question is, can he beat out a guy in Steven Gosnell who has been in the system for a little bit longer than he has and who definitely has some talent to his own name. I think the expectation is that he does because Gavin Blackwell is a more gifted athlete. Um, and he has a – what's the word I'm looking for here with Sam Howell? They, they, they play, Yeah, they, they, he has a rapport. Sam. They played together at yep. Sun Valley High School down there in Indian Trail. That – that always shows up with teammates that follow with one another. That you know, he'll know how to give him the football. He'll That's know right. where he wants the football and everything like that. And that's the expectation, I think, is for Gavin Blackwell to be that number two. And we saw it when Ryan Switzer was here, when Austin Prohl was behind him. When you have another guy that you can put in the saw that you can trust, that's invaluable to your offense. And I think Carolina is wanting to have that. I think they're going to find that, whether it is Blackwell or Gosnell. Well, there you go. Yeah, talk about Sun Valley legends. You got to talk about Gavin Blackwell, Sam Howell, and uh, I mean, you got to talk about Jacob Marlowe, right? Marlo, there you go. Bo Marlowe. <laughs> we all the Marlowe shined at Sun Valley High School back in the in the late '80s. There you go, man. They've produced some of the best. Unfortunately, they didn't produce this Marlowe though. He had to go to a little produce bit. an ex girlfriend of mine that I. Dang. All know. right. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're gonna cut that out before this gets a little risque. But uh, I mean, look, even after that, I mean. You you talk. I talked about this in the article. You're talking about even the deeper depth on this podcast or on this pod on this roster. Uh, I mean, talking about guys like we haven't even touched on Kobe Paysauer yet. He's an explosive guy. Can go up and get the football. Um, he's going to be one of those guys that's probably going to fit the mold of your third down pass catcher. That is going to be a big time red zone threat for you. We saw him targeted pretty often in the spring game. Unfortunately for him, it was raining a lot, so yeah. he didn't get to catch a lot of those targets. But he's a guy that I don't know if he factors in this year, just because of the fact that you've got Bo Corrales there, um, and you got some of those other guys like Emory Simmons and Anton Green, who are probably, at, the, at this point, still ahead of him on the depth chart. But I think he's a guy, within the next couple of years, he's going to be able to have a pretty significant role for you. And then, I mean, there's other guys that you know we, we haven't touched on yet, but that are on the roster and can contribute probably if they need to. Justin Olsen, uh, you know, the sophomore uh, wide receiver from the Charlotte area. Uh, you know, last year saw him out there a few times, and whenever he was 
out there, he produced. Yeah. He made one of the best catches that wasn't a catch in the spring game, even though it actually was, but they didn't have replay in the spring game. Uh, he's, you know, one of those guys that when the, the football has come his way, he's made plays. And then you got Tylee Kraft. Talk about your guy that loves the size. Tylee Kraft at six four and a quarter, 205 on the outside. He's got good size. He's a guy that has pretty good speed as well. I mean, these are the guys that are currently battling for any reps. Yeah. In years past, these would be the guys that maybe had to start for you. So it, you can't talk enough about the depth of this wide receiving core right now. And then, I mean, you talk about some of the walk-on guys. There are a lot of them this year, seven on the roster this season. Carson Burgess, uh, as well as Gray Godwin are the veterans. Both guys are juniors uh, this year. You've got uh, Jeffrey Saturday, the son of former Tar Heel offensive lineman Jeff Saturday. He's back for his sophomore season. Uh, and then Landon Stevens, a redshirt freshman, another guy from East Surrey High School. Carolina did a really good job of recruiting there. Another guy who will be back as a walk-on. And then three new walk-ons. You've got Thomas Flynn from Providence Day High School in Charlotte who will be with the team this year. You've got uh, Brooks Miller out of Greater Atlanta Christian School, which is the same high school that Trey Morrison went to. He comes in as a walk-on. And then one that is rather notable here. We don't know how much he's going to play, but Cyrus Rogers comes out of Rollsville High School in Rollsville, North Carolina. He will be a walk-on this year. He chose Carolina over NC State. That's not even the most significant part. His brother, Noah Rogers, in the 2023 class, guy that if you watched the 4AA State Championship game when Rollsville played Vance, uh, this guy really probably caught your eye. Rollsville did not have a great day throwing the football at all. Noah Rogers was fantastic. He's a four-star right now. He's one of those guys that he's got just about as high of a ceiling as any wide receiver in that 23 class. And he has said that he would like to play with his brother at the college level because he did it at the high school level yeah. and liked it so much. So this is... That, that's big for Carolina. It's very rare that a preferred walk-on is a guy that really can draw some headlines, but Cyrus Rogers is one of those guys that when people saw his name pop up on the roster, they were very, very excited for that reason. So that is your look at the Tar Heel wide receivers. Quickly, we'll touch on the Tar Heel tight ends. A really good group this year. Again, uh, you know, they do end up bringing back Garrett Walston. The super senior year uh, was definitely big for Carolina in this respect because with Garrett Walston coming back, you know, I think a lot of people want to say, well, is this the year that Garrett Walston finally breaks out as a receiver? I, I th We've got to talk about this real quick. If you think that there is going to be another guy soon that resembles what Eric Ebron did for the Tar Heels when he was here in the early Larry Fedora era, I... I, I I hate to break it to you, that's not going to happen. That's not the way this system is built. Your wide receivers, your running backs are going to be the guys that are going to receive the bulk of the targets. I think if you're looking for what he can end up being and what would be a bit a, a step for him again this year as a receiver, it would be to be a guy that you can trust early on in the season, be a guy that you can trust in the red zone, and be a guy that you can trust on third downs. And I think that would probably get you to around 30 to 35 receptions in a season. That's what I would look for from Garrett Walston in the receiving game. Yeah, I mean, if he 
can be a guy on third down to help move the chains when it's third and five, third and six. When they get in the red zone, if they got if they're double teaming Bo Corrales, you can get him the ball. And you saw it in that Wake Forest game two years ago where him and Sam Howell had that kind of connection early on. That's what you're looking for. Everything he does in the passing game is a plus because he is a great blocker for Carolina where he's run blocking or pass blocking. The guy that's going to be catching the football that you're going to be knowing about, maybe Kamari Morales this year, is going to be Bryson Nesbitt in a couple of years down the road. But this offense is built to run the football and throw to the watchers on the outside. The what the tight ends give you are just extra. That's just like that's just like uh, overtime pay at your job. That's all that is. So if he it's that can, time and a half, baby, yeah, those tight ends. I mean, like, and I, if he can give you what Zach Pianalto gave, you know, um, and like, hey, first his, off, I his loved numbers him. were really, really good. But I the, think it, those numbers get were good board. because they were thirty catches in the in the three hundred fifty four hundred yard range with four or five touchdowns. If he gives you that, that just unleashes a whole other part of your offense. And then, who knows? I mean, this offense could go to another level that we didn't even think it was possible last season. Yeah, and I mean, you said it. The biggest role is what they do in run-blocking situations. Yes. And Garrett Walston coming back is huge for this team because we talked about the top two guys right now that we think – if this team took the field today, would be the top two running backs that would see carries. It is Ty Chandler and it is DJ Jones. They have been compared. Now, again, not exact comparisons, but where they're going to make most of their money, where they're going to have the most success is by getting on the edge and showing off their speed in space. They want to get to space like Michael Carter did a year ago. Garrett Walston was a big reason why Michael Carter was able to have the success that he did a year ago. And I think that in order for these running backs to have success, you needed a guy like Garrett Walston to come back. That's a huge boost. You've got a veteran offensive line, but to have that guy that can help seal the edge for you, that is humongous for this team. And then, like you mentioned, Kamari Morales, I think, you know, at a time last year there was a battle going on. I think that's over. I think he's your number two guy right now. He looks to be the most complete out of the rest of the guys behind Garrett Walston. He's a guy that, honestly, he's gotten to the point as a blocker just from watching him towards the end of last year and the reps that he took. And even in that spring game this year, he's a guy that you could probably put out there and still feel pretty confident in what you're going to get from him. There wouldn't be a ton of drop-off from Walston to him. That's something you really like to see. Um, and and then you look at some of the depth here. You know, you talked about Bryson Nesbitt, and he's definitely going to be a guy that I think Carolina fans have got to know. Talk about a red zone threat. I mean, he's six six and a quarter, two hundred forty five pounds. He's going to make some plays in the red zone. That was his specialty at South Mech High School. Hell, his junior year, he was the only guy on the team that was catching touchdowns. That team couldn't score if they weren't throwing to him. Uh, but he uh, is. A guy that I think, if he would have gotten in as an early enrollee, I think he could be the number three tight end on the depth chart. Yeah. He comes in as a summer guy, but to be honest with you, I don't think it was the worst thing for him because he's, this is the one thing about him, very raw. He has only played two years of football. Before that, he played exclusively basketball. A lot of those guys can have success, but again, you know, he's got a, a low floor but an extremely high ceiling. He is a high upside guy that Carolina knew they had to take a risk on as a four-star guy that was in-state. And I think there's a lot to like about him. Um, You know, I was telling you a little bit about him when we were talking about him. He's a guy that... 
if you watched him his junior year of high school, which was his first year of high school football, they split him out wide. They pretty much had no other receivers on that roster. The yeah. offense wasn't really that great. I was wondering, you know, when Carolina offered them and seeing how they use their tight ends, I said to myself, how are they going to use – how is this going to make a lot of sense for them to bring him in? Like, I mean, he, he'll be able to catch the ball, but they're going to use him as more of a receiving tight end, I guess. He's not really going to be all that great of a blocker, you wouldn't think. Well, that's not necessarily the case. I watched him this past year as a senior, uh, one of their tougher games of the year, and he looked good. He, I mean, again, he's still got some things that he's got to work on. He, You can tell that he hasn't been you know, in run-blocking situations a lot. Uh, but there is some talent there. Uh, he's definitely got the strength. He's got the will. Uh, he, he's going to be a guy that's going to climb the depth chart pretty quickly. But, it, I mean, look, John Copenhaver, another guy that could catch the football in high High school, he's added the weight. He's, you know, continuing to work on becoming a better blocker. He's got to do that. Him and Kendall Carr, who was a little bit banged up again in uh, the spring. Big thing for Carr is he's got to get healthy. Senior year of high school misses it with an ACL injury. Last year, uh, you know, uh, was you know didn't get the normal off season to sort of transition, learn the offense the way that he would have liked. Uh, and, and been able to climb the depth chart. And then this year, when he gets that spring that he was wanting, eh, it doesn't end up working out for him because he ends up getting banged up. I think he still practiced a little bit but was slowed by the injury. So he's definitely a guy that's just looking to get healthy and then we will focus on climbing the depth chart. I think right now, Copenhaver's probably that number three, but Nesbitt is coming for that number three yeah. spot for sure. Uh, and then the other guy on the roster uh, is uh, the walk-on tight end, a sophomore, Will Crowley. Most of you guys will probably remember that last name. Not sure if he's related to the former Tar Heel center, Lucas Crowley, but is related to another former Tar Heel offensive lineman, Pat Crowley. That is his son. We talked to him earlier this year on the podcast if you want to go check that out with a shameless plug right there. So that uh, wraps it up for our look at the wide receivers and tight ends. Really quick, hit on a couple of recruiting notes before we get out of here. Big week coming up for Carolina. Bryson Jennings, he is going to commit tomorrow, so make sure that you guys uh, are keeping an eye out for that. We're going to have coverage of that commitment. Uh, looks like it's going to be between us, uh, us, between North Carolina and uh, Virginia Tech. Uh, and then you've got uh, Caden Helms, Dalen Everett. They are going to decide over the weekend. Uh, it is going to, uh, you know, it's the 17th uh, of July. That's going to be a big day for Carolina. Caden Helms, a uh, guy that is down to four. Carolina made his top four along with Oklahoma, Miami, and Arizona State. Looks like according to the crystal balls, none of them have really shifted either. That Caden Helms is right now probably going to head to Oklahoma, but there's still a little uncertainty there with Dalen Everett. Uh, pretty quiet on his front since his official visit. Carolina does own a crystal ball for him though, but that's one that I think really until about the last second, we're not really going to know what his decision is going to be. That would be a huge one for Carolina. A guy that originally was from the state of Virginia, went down to IMG Academy, and that, believe it or not, in football, would be Carolina's first ever commit from ING Academy. They had a guy a couple years ago uh, for a while, Jaden Curry, who was part of Larry Fedora's last class, but he was a guy that looked like he was going to leave anyways. Once Mac Brown came there, he did end up leaving and I believe went on to either Georgia Tech or 
South Florida, if I remember correctly. One of the two. So this would be huge for Carolina if they were able to pick up this commitment in this class and get a, another headliner corner as they did last year, of course, with a guy that reclassified and became a pretty good player in Tony Grimes. Uh, and the last thing, Addison Nichols, uh, 2022 four-star interior offensive lineman from the state of Georgia. He released his final three. This is one that the Tar Heels were kind of out of for a while. They didn't make his previous top schools list. Now they're in his final three. So all of a sudden, this was a name that I feel like was kind of off the radar for a while for Tar Heel fans. This is a guy that sort of creeped back onto the radar for Tar Heel fans in this class. He's a four-star prospect. There's no doubt if he wants to commit to Carolina, he's going to have a spot. And this is a guy now you need to put back on the radar and keep an eye on as he hasn't set a commitment date yet, but he's down to a final three. So it feels like things are probably getting pretty close to being over for him as well. So we'll have you covered with all that. The website, HeelToughBlog.com. Check it all out there. All the recruiting stuff, all these uh, you know position previews. We go a little more in depth on the website. Wide receivers, tight ends are two separate articles up there for you guys. Uh, but make sure you check those out uh, for us. Uh, we really appreciate that. Uh, it goes you know a little bit more in depth to all of the players. So you get a little bit more of a feel for the guys that we just talked about. Um, and same, you know, all the other ones are going to be going up uh, as well. Uh, most of them will probably be up before the podcast comes out. Some of them may come out a little bit after, just you know, based on how we're doing things, the timing of everything. So, uh, but it, we, we've got those up there for you. Those have been a hit so far. You guys have done a great job reading those so far. Uh, the quarterbacks one did fantastic. The running backs one did even better. So, uh, I definitely feel like you guys are really enjoying those, and we're happy that you are because those are some of my favorite articles personally to write each and every season. Uh, speaking of some of our favorite articles to write, you know what's coming up here in the near future, guys. Top battles in camp. We're also going to have the breakout player predictions. All that type of stuff is coming up on the podcast side of things, but also on the website. So make sure you head over to the website. Check that out along with the basketball coverage. Jalen Washington committed to Carolina. Josh has an article up about that. Same thing with Dawson uh, Garcia, who committed as a transfer coming in. He's got that article up there for you. And we got the schedule, the at-a-conference schedule, finally for Tar Heel basketball. He breaks down that at-a-conference schedule for you guys. Make sure you check it out. You can also check out the podcast on the website. We've got tabs at the top, one for the Heel Tough Blog podcast, one for the Four Corners podcast. If you want to listen there, you can also listen on any of your major podcast sites, uh, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, even have it on Audible now, which is a great place where you can check out podcasts, audiobooks, all sorts of different stuff. You can check it out there as well. We just hit that platform and we are really excited about that. And then of course the video version that you're watching right now. If you are watching, make sure that you like and follow the Facebook page so that you get notifications whenever another edition goes live. We want you guys to be able to lock in on this all season because we're going to be doing the video podcasts all year. We're bringing the graphics back, everything like that for player of the game, all that kind of stuff. We're going to have all that stuff back this year since we are back in our studio, and, and we are so grateful for everybody that's allowed us to be back in the studio, for everybody that's uh, you know tuned in to the first few editions, because the first two editions so far of the video podcast have been unbelievably successful, and we've got to hand it to you guys. You guys have really come uh, hard when it's come to you know getting in and watching these videos. We really appreciate that, uh, and uh, hopefully you guys will be tuning in with us uh, all season 
season long here on the Heel Tough Blog Podcast. So that wraps up for this edition of the podcast. Make sure you follow Josh on Twitter at HTBJosh. Follow me on Twitter at HTBAnthony. And follow the Twitter page at Heel Tough Blog on Twitter. Want to thank you guys for watching and listening. And as always, go Tar Heels! Heels!